want to read from two passages this evening. The first is Luke chapter 23, just a few verses. Both of these passages, I'm sure, are very familiar to all of you. Luke 23, and reading from verses 39 through 43. I'm sorry, I didn't look up the page in the church Bible. Trust you all know where Luke is, I hope. Uh, Luke 23, beginning in verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed Jesus, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we justly, for we received the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And then turning over to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is the word of our God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this, your holy inerrant, infallible word. We thank you that there is no fault in it, that it comes from you and it comes to us living tonight that we might know you and your work and all that we have in Christ. So we ask that you would strengthen our assurance and comfort us with this your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we 
We uh, are promised by Christ that in this life we will have trouble. And uh, we, among other troubles that everyone else has, of course, have the trouble that we're Christians. And uh, all the struggles that come with that, the people not liking us, maybe your neighbor, maybe a relative, and things like that, it's very conceivable that a discouraged Christian could ask, what benefit is there in Christ? And two or three weeks ago, whenever we were in the catechism last, we talked about what benefits there are right now for me in Christ. Uh, But the catechism's next thought then with uh, these two questions we recited together today is what benefits do we get that other people don't get in the future? And that's our focus here. What benefit is there to being a Christian now as we anticipate the future? And I, I think in the Shorter Catechism, there are, uh, well, I have five benefits written down here. There may be far more that you can extrapolate from what these five have, but there are at least five benefits that lie ahead of you if you are in Christ. Benefits which make it worth it right now. And I want to just walk down through these tonight. I've chosen these two scripture texts because I think these are the central texts that tell us what we ought to anticipate in terms of benefits uh, in our future being in Christ. So the first benefit our catechism lists is paradise. Paradise. My first my first point when I was writing a draft of this sermon was to ask, what happens to the soul of the believer at death? Uh, and from 1 Thessalonians 4, we can say, sleep. And then what do you do with that? What do you do with that? So, of course, that's not true. But, but that's what some people teach, isn't it? Uh, And in our own region, there's a a Bible college that teaches that the soul of the believer at death falls asleep. Your soul will wake up when Jesus returns, but until then, there's this void, soul sleep. But of course, that doesn't fit with the first of our scripture passages, does it? The thief on the cross asks Christ, when you are in your kingdom, you will be conscious, Lord. You remember me. And Christ's response is, no, you will be with me today in paradise. It's a very clear statement that immediately upon death, this person's soul would be conscious of being in the paradise of God. Paradise, that that language which in the prophets is often used to reflect back on Eden before the fall. Of course, far greater for the Christian, knowing that they are with the Lord. You will be with me in paradise. 
Because of this, the catechism can speak of the souls of believers made perfect in holiness and immediately passing into glory. This day you'll be with me in paradise. Luke 23, verse 43 is not the only passage that shows us there's a conscious existence for the believer's soul at death. It's the most clear, it's the most direct, but we can think of other things as well. Think, for example, of Christ's parable about Lazarus and the rich man. Christ's parables, of course, there's debate with that parable. Is that a real account of someone's life that Christ is extrapolating over to make another point? Or is it a a made-up story like so many of his parables? But in one sense, that doesn't matter. Because when you look at Christ's parables, he uses real-life illustration to make a point. And what does Christ show us in that parable? He shows us a believer at death, in paradise, having a conversation with Father Abraham. It's a conscious reality. As, unfortunately for the unbeliever, is the suffering and agony of punishment. Both are immediate. It's not pointing ahead into a future after Christ returns because remember what the rich man asks. Send me back. Or send Lazarus back to talk to my brothers, my brothers who are still alive. This is an immediate reality, according to this parable of Christ, that the soul of the believer is consciously in paradise. The soul of the unbeliever is consciously suffering. Or another passage is in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, 9 through 11. The souls of the martyrs are crying out in heaven. That is, they're very clearly aware of what is going on in history and wondering what the future holds. Why is Christ waiting so long to bring justice on earth? So in all three of these passages, we have the souls of believers conscious and aware and enjoying paradise, enjoying the presence of God even as they have not yet reached that final state, right? The martyrs are waiting for something, and they're anxious for it, but they're already conscious of being in the presence of God. So the first thing we can say, what happens to the soul of believer at death? Not sleep. Paradise. And an immediate paradise. The second benefit then is Rest, And here we have to return to that word sleep in 1 Thessalonians. If 1 Thessalonians is not Paul saying, hey, you, you die as a Christian, you're, you're unconscious until Christ returns. Your soul has no experience, you're asleep. Then what is Paul saying when he says, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep? Clearly, he's talking about those who have died, but if it's not their soul being unconscious, how do we understand it? And, of course, the catechism is taking the stance that it's the body of the believer that is dormant. And that that fits, doesn't it? 
The soul of believer is with Christ in paradise immediately, but the body we know is still in that grave. It's decaying. There are, as Hamlet liked to reflect, there are worms. And that doesn't change anything, that you're a believer versus a non-believer. If you dig up a non-Christian and a Christian a couple of weeks later, and I don't recommend doing that, but if you did, you would find the same grotesque reality. But Paul's saying, that's not the end of their story. There is a resurrection ahead. Whatever the worms do, whatever the earth does, whatever time does and decay, there will be the bodily resurrection. Well, that's the third point. I don't want to get ahead of myself on that. But there, there is this, this, this sleeping, this rest, your soul immediately in glory, and their bodies being still united to Christ, rest in their graves. Till the resurrection. That's the difference, isn't it? That's the only difference for the body of the believer versus the unbeliever. Union with Christ. We read the New Testament. And the redemption that's painted for us is not a partial redemption. And it's not some kind of platonic Greek redemption of of the good, the soul, versus the body, which is evil. That that was pagan philosophy. But in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. He created them out of the dust of the earth. He breathed life into Adam, then created Eve out of Adam's rib. And he looked at them, body and soul, and said, this is my image, and they are created very good. There's no concept throughout any of Scripture that the body of the believer is somehow evil and sinful while the soul is untainted and just wants to be set free from that prison. Rather, in Scripture, we're shown body and soul created good, body and soul fallen. Both in body and soul sinful and decaying and dying and both redeemed in Christ. The soul of the believer at conversion is immediately redeemed. But we're still waiting something else, aren't we? We still hurt. And the effect of the fall, the condemnation of death for the fall that we fell into with Adam in the garden, still looms over us. But the New Testament makes it very clear that while it looms ahead of us, It no longer has any sting for us because, well, it's right here in verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians 4. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Christ. And he makes it clear what that looks like. Christ comes in 10 minutes. Don't think that you will meet Christ before your dead loved one who was a believer. They get raised. And you meet Christ with them in the air. 
The body of the believer then has a rest even as the decay and the worms set in. Why? Because its end, its end is not worms. The body of the unbeliever has worms now. And the, the worms and suffering of hell for all eternity. But the body of the believer gets to rest now. This is the worst that will ever happen now. And it gets better from here. When we will be raised like him. And so the third thing is, of course, as I've already said, resurrection. A benefit we anticipate is resurrection. Job foresaw this in one of the earliest theological statements we have recorded in terms of history in the Bible. Job reflects that though this body and these eyeballs will decay, yet with this flesh, in this flesh, and with these eyes, I will see God. There's really no way to read what Job is saying apart from resurrection, bodily resurrection. And when theologians do, they're trying to twist the words out of their clear meaning because they don't think the idea of resurrection could be understood by anyone back then. Well, the Holy Spirit can reveal to men at any time. And he revealed to the prophets of old the resurrection. But we have it more clearly, don't we? We don't just rest on Job's word about what will happen to his body. We have, as verse 14 says, the resurrection of Christ. And we will be raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Well, what does his resurrection include? His resurrection included a real body reunited with a soul. A real body. How do we know that? Luke 24, 42 through 43. He said, do you have any food? And they gave him fish and honeycomb and he ate it in front of them. A real body. And of course, even more famous than that, he showed them his hands and his feet and his side. Which shows us it's not only a real body, it's the same body. The same body renewed, the same body glorified, the same body with none of that effect of the fall touching it, but the same body with scars in the hands and feet and side, in heaven, interceding for us. And Paul says that's the testimony of what you should anticipate when your body is resurrected and reunited with your body. One of the the saddest doctrines that have been lost, I think, in American evangelicalism is the resurrection of your body. Not that you will be raised with an all-new body. Technically, that's not resurrection. Resurrection means that which was dead brought back. 
Resurrection doesn't talk just about your soul with something all new. It talks about your soul reunited with a renewed creation. A renewed body still yours. Look at Christ. The testimony, says Paul, of what you should anticipate at the resurrection. And then fourth, so we anticipate the the benefit of paradise, of rest for the body while we wait for Christ, and then resurrection and reunion of the body and soul when Christ appears. Fourth, acquittal. That's a benefit you get to look forward to. Acquittal. A public acquittal. The Catechism talks about it publicly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment. Now, if you're in Christ, you should know now that you've been pardoned. It's not that you're being left hanging there. Well, maybe I'm saved and maybe I'm not. So, so what's the last day of judgment acquittal about? It's a public acquittal. Think, think about, and I'm not, this isn't a political statement here, but just all the people in our country who feel like they are, are misjudged. Maybe someone gets acquitted at the court, but the court of public opinion is different. Oh, you just got off on a technicality. Oh, you got off because whatever, whatever about the judge or about you. You realize when you're in heaven, there will never be a moment when anyone has the ability to say, you got off on a technicality. We'll all have gotten off because we've had a substitute. But on the day of judgment, The judge of the universe will condemn some, but he will say of the others publicly before every human who has lived in the history of the world, before every angel, both fallen and perfect. He will declare about those who are in Christ, acknowledgement, my sons and daughters, and acquittal. Paid in full. That's a benefit we get. Now we can look uh, a bit at that in terms of uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.17. It's not direct about that, but when we read those who are alive and remain will be caught up with uh, the resurrected in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Well, how can any sinner always be with the Lord? Well, they must have received pardon. Public acquittal. So that you might remain in the presence of the judge. Without fear. Without being cast off. And of course, Matthew 25, 32 through 34. All the nations gathered before God. 
Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's public acknowledgement, isn't it? Based on a public acquittal. And then fifth, a fifth benefit you get. I almost missed it, but it's, it's there in the catechism. Joy. Eternal joy. Our catechism talks about it like this. Publicly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoyment of God for all eternity. That's joy. I was thinking this last week about all the questions we get caught up in about heaven. I'm not not saying it's never wrong to think about any of these things, but will there be pets in heaven? Will I have my job in heaven? Will I, right? We, we think about all the things that we find as a source of joy here below. And regardless of what the answer to some of those questions is, the reality is without sin, we will be focusing on our created purpose. We don't cease being creatures with a created purpose. In heaven, what is that purpose? Our chief purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, with or without pets. Right? Enjoy Him forever. That's why Paul keeps saying, comfort one another about this. You'll be with the Lord. You'll be with the Lord. And you'll be with the Lord without sin. And you'll be with the Lord without sin because he gave his life to pardon you so that you can be acquitted and not fear the judge for all eternity. You'll be with the Lord in the full enjoying of him for all eternity. That's an amazing benefit. worth a lot of suffering to get that benefit. Remember what Hebrews says. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us fix our eyes, therefore, as Hebrews commands us to fix our eyes on him as we think about, is it worth it? This union with Christ, what benefits do we get? Well, don't forget the ones we have now that we looked at last time, but for the future, what benefit is there in union with Christ much in every way? All of these things we've looked at tonight with the the ultimate pinnacle of it, enjoying him. For all eternity, being with him for all eternity, fix our eyes, let us on him who endured 
for the joy set before him. And with great comfort in our hearts, let us run the race with endurance, knowing the benefits lie ahead.